Psalm 8, nine verses, eight key points that you'll see come up on the slides and one key message. And so let's ask God to help us understand his words today. Let us pray. Our Father, we recognise that all glory, power, majesty and dominion are yours forever and ever. We pray that you would help us understand your word today, apply it to our lives and go out in its strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I am the greatest. So said the 21-year-old Cassius Clay in 1963. And that was his boast even before he had defeated Sonny Liston to win his first world heavyweight crown. Brash and arrogant, the controversial Clay, I think most of us know him as Muhammad Ali, was almost certainly the greatest sportsman of his era. Now, I don't claim to be any Muhammad Ali, but come Christmas Day, I was feeling pretty smug when I was given a Mr Perfect mug by, of all people, my mother-in-law. <laughs> Until I suddenly found out that Pam had been shopping with her and said, Phil will appreciate the joke. <laughs> so I guess greatness is in the eye of the beholder and fame and flash, uh, fashion are somewhat fleeting and those who are perhaps pumping up your tyres one day are the ones who quickly let the air out of them the next. But, oh, majesty, that which is exquisitely beautiful, that which is splendid, that is which is breathtaking in its scale or striking in its awesome power and authority, majesty is something again. And I'm not sure how many of you might have visited the castles of kings and queens around our world or marvelled even on TV at their wealth and opulence or even seen the crown jewels. We'd sit there and go, wow. That is truly something else. But then we think about it for a little bit longer and you go, you know, for all their worldly splendour and power, the world's thrones and kingdoms are not quite what they were in the days of empire. And there are probably many here who even see royalty as irrelevant, particularly here in Australia. But today we're going to come to Psalm 8 and we're going to talk about a greatness that transcends time that transcends national boundaries and the vagaries of fashions, we are going to talk about a majesty that can be seen everywhere we look and a majesty that is truly timeless. Because, you know, even 3,000 years after David wrote this psalm, we today join with him saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You see, here in Psalm 8 verse 1, King David, who by earthly standards himself was a rich and powerful and influential figure on the world stage of his time, he takes time to reflect on the name of God, the covenant name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, which our church Bibles translate as the Lord in capitals. And then he also reflects on Yahweh's personal relationship with Israel. That he was their chosen people, very present Lord and Master. And if we were to go back into the original language, we would have seen words that speak to the relationship forged with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. 
And the word picture there is one that Yahweh is their prop, their stay, their support. And the root of these ancient words reveal the Lord as the nation's true ruler, their director, the key source of support. And so we go into our history books and we think of men like Alexander the Great, Cyrus the Persian, the Caesars of Rome, Suleiman the Great, and even the monarchs of Spain and England. And according to Google, they could at best lay claim to a quarter of the world's land mass and a quarter of the world's population at any one time. And whilst, yes, there may even be a human footprint on the moon, there is no one but the Lord whose glory extends beyond the earth, beyond the universe, beyond time and even above the heavens. The Lord Almighty's reign is not limited to 15 rounds in a boxing ring. It spans the universe and all time. And you may well marvel at the story in 1 Kings that tells of the majesty of the Queen of Sheba visiting David's son Solomon with a massive caravan of camels that, if you can imagine, carried over four tonnes of gold as well as many precious stones and spices. And I don't know if you can picture like we've got on the screen here all these gifts being presented with great pomp and ceremony one after the other by exquisitely robed servants each one speaking to the wealth and power and prestige of the one who was coming. And no doubt she arrived in all her majesty, arriving in all of her glory. But you know something? If you continue to read 1 Kings 10, for all her pomp and prestige, the chapter simply goes on to place her in context. And it does so by putting her alongside God's king, Solomon, and saying how he had even greater wealth and he had superior wisdom. And we know where this came from. They were gifts that he received from the Lord. The point being that David's God could bless his chosen one with mega riches without in any way diminishing his own supply. For his glory reached beyond the heavens. And the question is, how could one's glory reach so high go so wide and be sustained for so long? It must be because the Lord is the creator of all things, that he is the rightful owner and ruler of all, that he alone has the ultimate right to give and withhold, to bless and to curse. He alone ultimately sustains and provides. He is the author and giver of life itself. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, of course, such a glorious and all-powerful God would surely leave no doubt that his stronghold would stand against his enemies. And certainly it would be sufficient to silence any foe or avenger. But I just want you to check out verse 2. He says that he does this through the praise of children and infants, the weakest of all. That's how it's achieved. Now, think about this. How humiliating would it be for any opposition if you are seen by others not to have been defeated by the first team, not defeated by reserve grade, but by the most junior of teams in the victors' club. But that's exactly God's way. And you can think about 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 to 29, where it says, God chooses the foolish things of the world to put shame to the wise. 
The weak things of the world put shame, put to shame the things that are mighty. And I kind of think that even Muhammad Ali's mouth would be silenced because there would be none who would be able to boast before the Lord. And as I was um, preparing the this, this sermon, I th- saw this terrific story in 2 Chronicles 20 that kind of brings verse 2 to life. In the day of King Jehoshaphat, his army was hopelessly outnumbered by some Moabites and Amorite armies that were coming to, um, to battle them. And so they inquired of God and what he ended up doing was as the army went out, hopelessly outnumbered, before the army, men were sent singing praises to God. And whilst the army was still marching out, singing praises to God, God himself caused a massive opposing army to destroy itself, such that the fear of the Lord fell on all the surrounding kingdoms. And whilst that is certainly a massive miracle, isn't it true for us that God's power is often seen most clearly amidst our own human weaknesses? And then also too that the resultant joy in our hearts comes out in such a way that it quiets our doubts and it silences those who would oppose us. But the prophetic power of verse 2 is best seen on Palm Sunday where we read in Matthew 21 of the praises of the children in the temple courts. And as Jesus was quoting the very words of verse 2, by doing so he declares himself to be God and he in fact exposes the Jewish leaders to be the enemy and the avenger spoken of in the psalm. And what Jesus is doing here is he's using the immaterial, the words of praise, from the immature, the very little children, to expose and silence his enemies. And of course, as Luke 19 adds, if the children had been silenced, the very stones on the road would have called out. Now, the battle between weak and strong has, of course, blazed ever since the days of Adam and Eve when they were deceived in the garden. But as Genesis 3 foretold, Satan might well bruise the heel of God's chosen one, but out of that position of apparent weakness, God's chosen one would rise up to crush the serpent's head. But how can it be possible for the weak to overcome the strong? It will only be when the weak are propped, are supported and are provided for by the great I am of Exodus 3, by the Lord, our Lord, who is majestic in all the earth. Now, Ali was perhaps had all of the right words there, but in fact, he probably needed a refocus as shown in this next slide here, where the great I am truly is the greatest. Now, the great I am, his greatness is literally there for all to see. Verse 3 tells us how we only need to look up to the heavens, for they're the work of his fingers. The moon and stars have all been set in their place by him. So let's just picture for a moment the great I am literally standing over and above his creation, dwarfing it, in that his very fingers are flinging the stars out, like our sun, into space. You see, our God dwarfs our universe and the course of history just as our universe and history dwarfs you and me, 
to the point of insignificance. And yet, in probably what is the pivotal part of the psalm, as verse 4 says, our God somehow values mankind. And David here is marvelling that such an awesome God would even be mindful of mankind. And so he's even more overwhelmed when he thinks that God cares for us. And even more when he actually understands that our God loves us. And he loves us with the love of a father. And how deep is the love that God has for us? We all know John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so clearly God wants his family with him for eternity. Now the son of man reference in verse 4 is not a direct reference uh, to Jesus and he's his title he often used as the son of man and verse 5 is actually stating a truth that is there for all mankind for without doubt we have been made a little lower than the angels because unlike them we are limited in time and space but we need to understand that we are by no means less from the beginning we were crowned with glory and honor in that we were made in the very image of God himself and we were given authority over all of the works of our Father's hands. We were created to be rulers over all we survey. But it was to be done in a joyous relationship as obedient sons and daughters of our Father. A Father who just happens to be the Lord who made all things, who sustains all things and has the right to bestow all of this on his children. I don't know about you but it just makes me go, wow. And in doing this, the psalm is actually deliberately pushing us back in verses 6 to 8 to reflect on all that we've been given, to go back to creation and to think on all the things that God has made. And as we go back to the creation story, I hope it helps you to see man as he was created to be. Picture of Adam and Eve as part of the royal family, walking with their God and Father in the cool of the day, with all creation doing their bidding. We see man exalted in the reflected glory of their God and Father, great and powerful, the supreme head of creation, because they were the Lord's chosen ones. So what a disaster it is when man rebels, when we rebel against the Father and say, I want knowledge and dominion and power and glory in my own right. Mankind turned their backs on the glory that were theirs as sons of the Father and it gets replaced by the sin and shame of rebellion. Now mankind is going to have to battle to subdue a world that once was under their feet and of course death becomes the new reality. The greatness of man is now very much in question and history has shown us that what was to be a glorious reign and rule under God has become one of striving in our own strength, where even the best, the brightest, the strongest and the fastest, they all give way to the march of time. It is a very sad case of glory lost. But you cannot see Psalm 8 as a psalm of grief and despair. It is a psalm of unbridled praise and thanksgiving. And why is that? It is because of the great truth of verse 4. 
the great and glorious God of the universe, is still and has always been mindful of mankind. The works of the universe are immense. And, of course, that has led some um, commentators to suggest a very remote God, one who has wound the world up like a clock and then left it to run down to its inevitable end. But Psalm 8 won't let us think like that. In verses 6 to 8, it proclaims an order and an exquisite attention to detail in creation. And as we're taken back to Genesis, we recall how our God spoke into the dark, formless and empty to make it a home for his beloved family that even he said was very good. And of course, he's a God with a plan because as Ephesians 1.4 says, probably my favourite verse in the Bible, that he had decided to have us as his children when? Before the creation of the world. He is a God with a plan. He chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. He predestined us for adoption as his sons and daughters and he did so for eternity. And so our God has a love that is truly older than time. It is a love that is truly stronger than death and it is faithful and trustworthy. Now in 1 Samuel 7, David saw all of these grand truths focus in on him because God said to him, I am going to promise you that a king from your line will always sit on your throne. Now David had started life out as a shepherd boy so you can just imagine how he can only marvel that the God of the universe would be mindful of him. And in 1 Samuel 7.18 he says, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family? that you have brought me this far. And so in verse 22 he says, How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is none like you. There is no God but you. And as David no doubt reflected on how the Lord had prospered him from looking after his father's sheep, enabling him to overcome the bear and the wolf and even the lion, he had humbled the mighty. And then he had also been enabled by God to defeat the great Philistine champion. He'd been provided so that he could outlast the pursuits of Saul and he'd become king. And he'd even seen his nation go from war and weakness to peace and prosperity. And now David is blown away saying that if all these present blessings were not enough, God was now promising him an eternal dynasty. He says, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. Who was he, a mere human, that God was mindful of him? Now, you know, while while David asks this question in a sense of awe, interestingly enough, it's not the only time in scripture that that actual question has been asked. What is man that you are mindful of him? In Psalm 144, verse 3, you'll find the same words. And they're used to challenge, perhaps even mock the rebellious, suggesting that only those who take refuge in God will be safe. Because what is man in and of himself? He is no more than a breath, and his days a fleeting shadow. In Job 7, the words are used to make clear that God's eye is always on mankind, and so there will be no hiding from him. God cannot be deceived or outsmarted. 
And you'll again find the similar words in Job 25, 6, where those words declare the true status of fallen humanity as being no better than a worm, a maggot before God, who alone is righteous, pure and holy. So regardless of which way we look on these words, the only way in which mankind has value is because God has placed value on us. Which reminds me of those really great words from Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 where it says, The Lord did not set his heart upon you because you were the most new, more numerous than other people's because in fact you were the fewest. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. So why does God love us? He loves us because he chose to love us. Now, no doubt David was able to reflect on a rich history of God saving his people, not because they deserved it, not because they were righteous, but because he loved them. He would have known the stories of the flood, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, of Joseph, of the Exodus and of Moses, and he had a rich history of his own that he could talk to. Time and again, Israel collectively and individually deserved to be forsaken, but Yahweh had proved faithful. And what of David himself? Was he not a flawed man, a man who took another man's wife and plotted murder to cover it up? Yet Yahweh still proved faithful. He kept his promise. He kept his promise in the person of Jesus, perhaps the greatest man, in fact, the greatest man. For in Romans 5, 7, it says, Very rarely would one die for a righteous man, Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here we have the ultimate answer to the question. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? It is that we are loved as a father loves his son and so is willing to do whatever it takes to have his chosen people with him for eternity. And we also see a right response of a son who loves his father so much that he will obediently do his will, even when tempted to rebel, even though it means death on a cross. And so we find Jesus in this psalm. And whilst David is not using the title Son of Man prophetically, Jesus readily identifies himself as the Son of Man, taking on our weak flesh to become the ultimate expression of the power, the glory and the love of God. And as we saw the writers of the Hebrews, he applied that truth in saying that Jesus was in fact made a little lower the angels for some time and he became man. He would prove himself to be the obedient son of the father where all others had failed. He would do the father's will. He would also show what it was to have all creation under his feet. He would walk on water. He would heal the sick. He would restore the sight of the blind. He would even raise Lazarus from the dead. Yet he understood weakness and temptation and was challenged to rebel. But as a man, he stood firm and glorified his father. And his father glorified him. Even from that point of absolute weakness on the cross, Jesus cried out in triumph, it is finished, as he made that once for all sacrifice 
so that the anger of a righteous God was dealt with fully and the door to salvation and relationship opened, restoring that glorious future for those who will believe in him. Given all that Christ has done, Hebrews 2 says how foolish it would be to reject such a great salvation. Verse 5 makes clear that eternity is not going to be a place ruled by angelic beings, but we are headed to our true home where we will reign with Jesus for eternity. We will regain the glory lost. And whilst this is our destiny, verse 8 of Hebrews 2 says it's not our current reality, yet we don't lose heart. And why? Because as verse 9 of Hebrews 2 says, but we do see Jesus. So we can be confident. And why? Because he was God, because he came as a man, because he's returned to the Father, because he has been crowned with honour and glory, because he suffered death, and because his death, by the grace of God, has paid for my sin and yours, so that we can be sure of our hope of a glorious eternal future as members of God's precious family. We will indeed reign with him for eternity. Oh, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Man will regain the glory lost. We, who now for a little while see ourselves as lower than the angels, will be revealed for all we've been made to be. Imagine what we can read in Revelation 7, that we'll be the ones crowned with glory, reigning on high, fellow heirs with Christ, all things under our feet, and not for a time, but for eternity. And so the psalm ends as it began, having taken us from Genesis to Revelation, from the depths of the ocean to the heights of the heavens. It praises and glorifies God. And why? Because the glory of God is absolute. All creation from the child to the heavenly host to the elders and the saints around his throne join in praising God for all he is, for all he's done and for all he's forever doing. You see, the glory of God is boundless. It's boundless in its holiness, in its purity, in its light, in its warmth, in its majesty. He is always victorious, strength being made perfect in weakness so that no other may boast before him. And his love, it's so intimate and selfless in that our God would become one of us, would live and die for us, would pay the price whilst we were still lost, while we were his enemies, whilst we were powerless in our sin, that we might be raised with him to eternal glory. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we are blown away as we consider the greatness of your power and your glory for all you have done in creation, for all you do in sustaining and providing for your world, for all you have done for us as mere human beings, that you love us, that you're mindful of us, that you care for us, that most of all you would send your son to die for us so that we might be yours for eternity. And not just yours, but fellow rulers with Christ. 
as we sit on thrones under you for eternity. Father God, we thank you for this glorious inheritance which is ours in Jesus. And we pray that whilst we wait, we might be your good and faithful servants. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.